You're listening to Civic Conversations, a podcast collaboration between the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County, and this station, WFHB. I'm Jim Allison, your host, and Becky Hill is our producer. We're pleased to say that you can find Civic Conversations each month on WFHB at 91.3 and 98.1 FM. Today, we're pleased to welcome Steve Hinefeld. Steve is a former longtime reporter for the Bloomington Herald Times newspaper. And today he's here to talk with us about the impact of losing local news sources. Welcome, Steve. Uh, why don't we start? Why don't we start with an agreement about a, a kind of a philosophy? Uh, and this would be in our representative form of government. I think we can agree on this. Both our representatives and the people who elect those representatives must be well and truly informed about the vital issues of the day. And I think that's an ironclad imperative. And once upon a time, local newspapers were a widespread source of that information. But since 2005, we lost over 2,500 of those, which is about 25% of them. And we want to know today, how did this happen and what difference has it made? And first off, what, if any, is the tangible, the typical tangible impact when a community does lose a local news source? Do we have hard data on this? What do you say? Yeah, there, there definitely are impacts when that happens. And, and it's, you know, the story's been told often that changes in technology, the rise of the internet and, and so on, uh, has kind of killed off or is killing off print newspapers and legacy news sources. And when we lose local news, that's the real concern here. Uh, there's research that shows that there's increased polarization within our communities and within our country, and uh, there are uh, there's less effective, less accountable local government. Taxes are more likely to be higher. There's likely to be more pollution. There's likely to be more corruption in government uh, because there isn't that uh, that local um, accountability or that local oversight that comes from the public knowing what's going on. Okay, let, let's talk a bit about digital news sources. What impact specifically do you think digital news sources have had on the local news media? So I think that uh, pretty much all news is becoming or on its way to becoming digital news. Uh, newspapers, TV stations, uh, everyone has to fi is figuring out that that's the way people are going to people are going to get their information their news online, um, and the idea of a, a printed newspaper that lands on your doorstep every morning uh, may last for a few more years, but it won't last for a whole lot more years. Uh, people have gotten used to the idea of reading, uh, getting information on their screens, one way or another. Uh, so that's that's what's what. what that's happening. And uh, newspapers in particular have been sort of slow to adjust to that and figure out how to adjust to it uh, financially in particular. Um, meanwhile, there are other entities that have come in, uh, digital first or digital only news outlets that are supplementing or complementing what uh, traditional news sources are, are doing. Some of them do, are doing a really good job of it. Um, in the state of Indiana, there's a new Indiana Capital Chronicle that covers the state house, does it very, very well, uh, foundation supported and, and donor supported, Chalk Beat, which covers education. Um, but the one issue with those is that 
Uh, they tend to be in more uh, urban and affluent areas and focus on niche topics that are interesting to uh, maybe more engaged uh, readers or viewers in uh, the communities that are left behind or the communities that are struggling anyway with things like job loss, poverty, and so on, uh, they are not getting those alternatives, not as likely to be served by those alternatives. In the meantime, they're losing their local news sources, their local newspapers, and that sort of thing. Okay, so it seems that your your notion is that uh, digital news sources have not fully replaced local news media by any means. Um, let's talk. Well, you actually, you and I have been in Bloomington for decades and decades and decades. It seems. So why don't you tell us what's happened in Bloomington over that long, long, long period of time? And also, what do you see on the horizon for Bloomington's new scene? So I think the um, the big obvious local story in uh, Bloomington, Bloomington local news, is the, I, I think it's fair to say, the decline of the Herald Times. Um, I worked there for nearly 30 years, and um, it really hurts me to see what what has happened in terms of, of the loss of staff, uh, and particularly the loss of, of local staff and loss of local news coverage. Um, and this is no fault of anyone who's there. It's something that's happened everywhere, honestly. It's, it's what's happened with the news industry. Uh, but we see it very clearly in Bloomington, a newspaper that used to have more than 50 people working in the newsroom doing all sorts of jobs. Uh, is now, uh, so I wrote about uh, for the Limestone Post a year ago um, about this topic, and the news director at the Herald Times told me at the time we were a newsroom of 12. If you look at their site today, their staff listing, they're now a newsroom of eight. Um, that's including uh, editor, reporters, photographer, sports writers, and it's just become impossible for them to cover the entire community. Of course, they're a Gannett paper. They have resources from Gannett. Some of the jobs that used to be do, done in Bloomington, layout, copy editing, and so on, are now done at other locations. Um, so it's not exactly an apples to apples comparison, but it's still really a loss of a lot of reporting power, local news uh, coverage and, and reporting. Meanwhile, uh, we've seen uh, the rise of some other uh, entities, uh, WFIU in particular, I think this is a real untold story, has grown their news operation. Uh, I think they have over 20 people on their news staff right now, public radio station in Bloomington. They're really doing a lot of local news coverage and doing a really good job of it. And we've seen the rise of these sort of um, um, uh, kind of uh, uh, entrepreneurial uh, news operations like uh, B-Square Bulletin that Dave Askins does, which does really in-depth coverage of city and government, city and county government in Bloomington. Uh, Jeremy Hogan's Bloomingtonian, which is a great photo site and a breaking news site. Jeremy shows up when other people don't show up at the middle of the night at news events. Uh, the Limestone Post does a really good uh, online feature news and so on, feature stories. Um, so there's, there's, there's a lot of alternatives that we have, but nothing that really replaces that broad-based, broad appeal newspaper that we used to have. 
Well, those are very encouraging examples, I think. Let's talk a little bit about ethics, journalistic ethics. Uh, many newspapers have been swallowed up, speaking of Gannett, by corporate news giants like Gannett, which of course itself is owned by a bigger fund yet. And I'd like to know what you think about the typical effect, if there isn't any typical effect on journalist ethics of all this kind of stuff. So when I think of journalistic ethics, I think of, of principles that uh, are put, put forward by the Society of Professional Journalism, uh, Society of Professional Journalists, excuse me, that, that um, include to, to report and tell the truth, to act independently, to minimize harm, and to be accountable. And the one that suffers is reporting and telling the truth. I think journalists are as committed to ethics and as committed to the truth and committed to independence uh, as ever, and possibly more so. I think in some ways, uh, in, one, in one way in which that's the case is that journalists are more committed to telling the diversity of uh, community stories today than they once were. Back when I was reporting, uh, there was much more of a bias that we were a kind of white male society um, and that those were the stories that ended up being told. And that's much less the case now. So I think that's improved. But I think the fact that there are so, uh, so much fewer, so many fewer journalists working in local news, telling local news stories, means that there's just a lot of the entire full story of the community that doesn't get told because there just aren't enough people to tell it. Amen. Okay, let's take a little bit deeper dive into this matter of corporate influence. Let me ask you, when corporate giants do take charge, do you think quality journalism takes a backseat to the enrichment of an investor elite? And what happens to journalistic ethics when a paper becomes a part of a large corporate entity, which is like what's happened here? Yeah, so, you know, again, I, the thing I didn't mention was that um, Gatehouse uh, bought the Herald Times in 2019. Then uh, later that year, Gatehouse merged with Gannett, and the co new company was rebranded as Gannett. Gannett owns most of the newspapers in the state of most. I would maybe shouldn't say most, but most of the larger newspapers in the state of Indiana, Indianapolis, Evansville, South Bend, um, Bloomington, Richmond, uh, uh, quite a, several others. Um, so, so that that that's been a that's been a real change here. I would say, in terms of quality journalism, somewhat paradoxically, there has been really, really excellent quality journalism that continues to be done. Maybe even more so under this uh, kind of questionable corporate ownership. If you look at the Indianapolis Star, they put a premium on investigative reporting. They have an investigative editor, investigative team. They've done fantastic investigations of uh, things like deaths in Indiana jails, um, the USA gymnastics scandal, uh, failures of, of the uh, Indiana's employee safety program. Those are all really great investigations. And of course, the good thing about that now is that if you're reading the Herald Times, your chances are you may read those investigations because uh, Gannett shares those, those products with other papers. Exactly, so that, exactly yes. Yeah. That kind of thing, uh, really high quality investigative journalism continues to happen. What doesn't happen as much is the kind of broad-based coverage of local communities, community events, 
school board meetings, um, city council plan commission meetings, board of zoning appeals meetings, the kind of things that really do matter to people's lives and help us understand what's going on in our communities and why it's going on and have conversations about that. That's the kind of thing that we've lost. And I think the, you know, with that, there's been, uh, with corporate ownership, there's been the shrinkage of local news. That's purely an economic thing changes in, in the economic model of news, of news and just the lack of profitability, the loss of advertising being the main thing, but also a sense that um, where once a family-owned newspaper or a community-owned newspaper might have felt some sense of responsibility to the local community, some sense that people expect us really to do this when the owners are investors and shareholders there's less of that sense. Okay, I agree. The STAR has been doing some really excellent work lately. But let's talk about alternatives to the established newspapers. Uh, how could a community finance, in your opinion, how could it finance the development of its own local news sources if it decided to do that? I think a lot of people are, are giving this a lot of thought. There are journalism think tanks and schools of journalism, schools of media studies that where researchers are really, uh, you know, bringing people together to talk about what may be working in some places and what um, what might be some promising practices. Uh, I think you, it's possible to think of large scale uh, kind of uh, philanthropic donor support uh, making a difference. Uh, uh, some of the entities like uh, Indiana Capital Chronicle, it covers the state house, Chalkbeat that covers education in Indiana and other other states um, have have gotten model. That's what Dave Askins does with B Square, uh, and in a sense, that's what WFIU is doing uh, with their fund drives. Um, so I, I think that it's possible to think about uh, also maybe kind of pulling together some of the existing talent and existing experimentation and entrepreneurship that's taking place and trying to think if there's a, a way of like joining those on a, a common platform. Um, but but it's a it's a it's a real challenge. And I, I, I don't think anybody's really found the answer. Indeed. Let's go back to politics just a bit. When a community loses a local news source, what do you think is the impact on local government, for example, and in general, the local political scene? Well, um, there's been studies that have shown increased polarization uh, with the loss of, of news sources. Uh, there has has been uh, studies that have shown fewer people to come forward to run for office. Uh, you won't have the same level of people stepping up to be candidates for school board, for city council, that sort of thing, um, which, you know, really affects the, the level and the, the quality and effectiveness of government. If you have fewer choices and less, less participation, um, if there have been, there's evidence of more corruption in government, if there's no one really watching, no one attending all the meetings, no one showing up, and uh, there is clear evidence that uh, costs of borrowing for local government, which you don't think about a lot, but interest rates on bonds are higher when there's not local news coverage. Uh, when people aren't watching, 
Um, it's, it's not even necessarily a matter of, of corruption or malfeasance, but just there's not the same incentive to do a good job if you don't know that your neighbors are out there watching or reading about what you're doing. So I think it really does make a, make a big difference. Okay. Finally, let's talk a little bit about disinformation and misinformation. Do you think that those two evils are on the rise, perhaps, because of the loss of local news sources? I think there's no question about that. I think that uh, that people are hungry for stories, and they're hungry for stories that help them make sense of the world that they live in and this vast array of confusing information that's out there. And so people are eager for, for folks who will tie things together and give them that kind of aha moment where they think that, yeah, oh, now I understand all this confusing stuff. And if they're not getting uh, responsible, reliable, professional, and ethical versions of that told by people whose job it is, whose profession it is to put that information together, uh, that really leaves the door open for uh, more misinformation, more disinformation, more people who have agendas to drive by uh, confusing people and creating chaos. And I think we see an awful lot of that. All right, Steve Hinefeld, thank you so much for talking about this important topic with us today. And to our listening audience, thank you very much for listening to us on Civic Conversations. This is Jim Allison of the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County. The League is a nonpartisan, grassroots, citizen-led organization that has been fighting since 1922, sorry, since 1920, to improve our government and engage all citizens in the decisions that impact their lives. And next month, we hope you can join us when we talk to League of Women Voters member and IU librarian Kate Cruikshank on the 26th Amendment of the, of the U.S. Constitution. And that's the amendment that has to do with the 18-year-old vote. 